welcome back to in crime i'm on episode 5 and that's it let's get straight into it i don't think i have a preamble this time so this case takes us to the bhavan kheri village in the hasanpur town of the amroha district of uttar pradesh the ali family was a highly regarded saifi muslim family it consisted of the patriarch shaukat ali his wife hashmi their eldest son anis his wife anjum their son 10 month old arsh the middle brother rashid and the youngest daughter shabnam as well as a cousin rabia shaukat ali was a man who spent his entire life in the pursuit of education he used to give free tuition to children who needed them and never discriminated on any basis when it came to opportunities his children including his daughter shabnam were all encouraged to study and get their degrees which was very rare for families of the bhavan kedi village but shaukat ali believed that he needed to set an example for other residents of the village after all he was the master ji of the village school his children did well in school they were encouraged to take up subjects they enjoyed and rashid by 2008 had finished his btech and was working in jalandhar shabnam too was highly motivated she earned her double ma in geography and english and taught at the village primary school the one her father was the principal of The students loved Shabnam. She was sweet and quiet, and unlike all the other hard-ass teachers of the school, Shabnam was young, demure, and affectionate. Usman, who was Shabnam's close friend from college, describes her as an all-round stand-up girl. Usman, when struggling through college, which was money, health, and studies, Shabnam helped him throughout. She even once paid for Usman's college fees, and she would help him with his notes. Usman describes Shabnam as his elder sister. The Ali family lived in a two-floor residence standing in one part of a sprawling 9-acre property surrounded by gardens and a mango orchard. Although the house bears clear signs of age, it was regal. The large gate that leads into the property was rusted and paint was chipping off its wall. But life was good for the Ali's in 2008. Shaukat and Hashmi recently welcomed their grandson Arsh and they could not be more thrilled. Rashid too had gotten a good job as an engineer and was contributing to the family handsomely. Shabnam and her father Shaukat would travel to the village school every day and Shabnam enjoyed teaching the students. But life was going to take a tragic turn on the night of April 14th and 15th in this household. The family was going to be asleep as usual by 10 p.m. So I'll just quickly explain the orientation and location of rooms in the house. Um I think it'll make it easier for you to picture the crime that takes place. So there's a courtyard in the middle of the house and one end extends to the kitchen and utility, the other to the master bedroom. Along the courtyard there were three rooms all adjacent to each other and the other end of the courtyard extends to the main door. This plan repeats itself on the first floor with the courtyard extending to the balcony. The entire family usually slept on the ground floor with Anis and his wife occupying one room, Rashid in the other, and Shabnam and Rabia in the third room, the one that was closest to the master bedroom. So anyway, on this particular night, the April heat was blazing. Shaukat Ali strung up a cot in the courtyard and decided to sleep there. Shabnam was supposed to sleep next to her mother and cousin Rabia in the master bedroom. but at the last minute decided to sleep on the terrace to be more comfortable around 2 am neighbors from the opposite house heard faint cries coming from the ali property cries p- 
pierced through the stillness of the mango orchard. Bachao, bachao. Shabnam was standing on the balcony that faces the main road, crying for help. Hasmat Hussain was a retired primary school teacher whose house was just across Shaukat Ali's. When he and his son heard the cries, they rushed over to the gate. The gates were locked and he and his son and a few other neighbours who had now gathered scaled the boundary wall and saw Shabnam standing on the first floor balcony. They asked her to come down but she kept crying saying that they'd kill her next. Hasmat Hussain obviously did not understand what was going and he initially thought that there was a robbery. He insisted that Shabnam exclaim if she was in immediate danger. After a lot of persuasions, she came down the stairs and opened the locks to the main door. The first sight that startled the neighbours was Shaukat Ali. He was lying in a pool of blood with his head decapitated. Shabnam was wailing and she was crying and she had to be taken away to Hasmat Hussain's house where she was kept company by his wife and daughters. Here, she started talking and recounting the events of the night. At 12 a.m., two assailants walked into the gate, into the house with an axe. They first butchered Shaukat Ali and moved into the individual rooms where there was a huge commotion. All this noise awoke Shabnam, who peeped downstairs and stayed mum on the first floor. She waited for almost two hours until the noise died down. After she was confident the two men had left, she cried for help from her balcony. Back in the house, the police arrived to find the bodies of the Ali family Shaukat Ali, like I mentioned, was found right at the entrance with his head severed. In the second room, Rashid Khan was found similarly with a huge blood spray pattern on the dusty green wall. It was later analysed to be an arterial spray, which is basically a spurt of blood released when a major artery is severed. So the blood is propelled out of the breached blood vessel by pumping of the heart. So this sort of forms like an arching pattern consisting of large individual stains with a new pattern created for each heart pump. In the next room, Anis and Anjum were dead too, heads decapitated. Ten-month-old baby Ash was still. He had been strangled and was lying in the pool of his parents' blood. Finally, in the master bedroom, Hashmi and Rabia were dead too. Shabnam was now the sole survivor. I have seen crime scenes photo from this case and I don't think I have ever seen that much blood before. Every room has smears of blood on the walls and just pools of blood on the floor. Rashid's room had the most amount of blood, probably because he put up the strongest fight. Rashid was strong and big. I cannot emphasize how much blood there was. I have not posted the crime scene photos on the Instagram page, but you can very easily Google it. Um, But just don't say that you haven't been warned. The bodies were shipped away to the post-mortem and the police continued investigating the house. Shabnam was questioned repeatedly and she recounted the same story over and over again. R.P. Gupta was the lead investigating officer. The police were baffled. This was such an out-of-the-blue attack and they had nothing to go off on. Shabnam had not seen the faces of the attackers, just heard their voices. And they were stumped. But here comes Officer R.P. Gupta with his quick eye and even sharper mind. And if you were paying close attention, you too would have picked up on the fact that R.P. Gupta defined as his first red flag. The neighbours could not enter the house till Shabnam unlocked the main door. How did the attackers enter then, if there was no forced sign of entry? 
Another thing he noticed was the crumbling of the bed sheets in each room. It was as if they were scrunched together after the attack. They did not seem like there was any resistance at all. Another huge find during the combing of the house, Officer Gupta found an empty strip of 10 tablets of Biopose. Biopose is basically the tranquilizer, diazepam, which is used to treat short-term anxiety as well as alcohol withdrawal symptoms. In colloquial terms, it's referred to as Nashili Golia. A postmortem confirmed that there indeed were drugs in everyone's system except baby Arsh. All this evidence convinced R.P. Gupta to take a closer look at Shabnam's story. He cross-examined the neighbours and dug deeper into the family. During this deep dive, the police questioned friends of the family as well as Shabnam's friends. The name Salim came up a lot during these interrogations. Salim was a resident of the village. He was a Pathan, a class 6 dropout and worked as a daily wager. He, along with his two sisters and mother, lived in an exposed brick structure at the far end of the village. Salim was the breadwinner of the family. Rumours started circulating to Shabnam and Salim's friends that they might be seeing each other. Friends of Shabnam and Salim noticed the beginnings of a relationship. Salim would go up in the middle of a conversation to take a phone call. Shabnam too was more distant and reclusive. At the beginning of 2008, Shabnam had put forth the statement to her family that she was dating Salim and wished to get married to him. Her family was shocked. They vehemently opposed this relationship. The biggest problem was that they belonged to different communities. They were Sefi Muslims and he was a Pathan. Also, there was a huge class difference. The Yalis were highly respected, land-owning, educated residents of the village, while Salim was a 6th grade dropout, day mill worker. Her family opposed the relationship and although they did not restrict her from moving out and about, tensions were running very high in the house. Officer Gupta now had circumstantial evidence enough to arrest Shabnam and Salim. He put forth the drug reports, the closed doors, as well as their illegitimate relationship. So five days after the murder of her parents, brother, sister-in-law, nephew and cousin, Shabnam was in custody. During the routine health checkup, there dropped another bombshell. Shabnam was seven weeks pregnant. It was Salim's child and everyone knew it. They were both sent to Moradabad jail, from where Salim was later shifted to Agra Central Jail. The trial date was set for July the following year. The police now had to convert all their circumstantial evidence to establish a timeline and a motive. In December that year, Shabnam, who was seven weeks pregnant when she was arrested, gave birth to her son Taj. So I'll get back to Taj and his story at the end. But for now, let's figure out what actually happened the night of April 14th or 15th. Shabnam had grown to weary in the days of April with the rising tension at home regarding Salim. Her parents were stubborn and were not willing to listen at all. And now she was pregnant. She did consider running away with Salim, but considering his education and work, Shabnam was smart enough to know he would not provide for the family, at least not in the luxury that she had been used to. If you would take away one thing from Shabnam in this case, is the fact that she is smart to a degree where it comes off as arrogant. So Shabnam hatched a plan. One where she could be with Salim and also be the heir sold to all of her father's property. This crime was planned very, very carefully. On the evening of April 14th, Shabnam was on chai duty, just like she was every evening. 
She dropped 10 Biopost tablets into the simmering milk and served it to all the adults of the family. Probably why the postmortem did not find any drugs in the baby's system. As the time passed, the family got drowsy and they were all very close to passing out. At 7.30, Shabnam made the first call to Salim. She called to tell him that everything was going to plan. Between 7.30 and 11.30, Shabnam called Salim 51 times, each call lasting around 30 seconds. She went over their plan multiple times, each time explaining the change of clothes he had to bring, the weapon and the disposal of the weapon. At 12 a.m., Shabnam opened the door for Salim and he walked in with an axe and thus began this gruesome family side. Shabnam held her father's head by his hair while Salim haphazardly sawed at his neck. They did the same to Anis, her elder brother, and his wife Anjum. Arsh, the baby who was not sedated, she strangulated him until he stopped crying and lay still. Rashid, however, was not unconscious like the rest of the family. He was drowsy, but he still put up a fight. There was a lot of back and forth sawing and the blood spray as I talked about at the top of the show. This whole ordeal lasted till 1 a.m. Afterwards, Salim left and at 1.32, Shabnam made the final call to Salim asking him if he had disposed of the weapon and if he had reached home. Immediately after that, Shabnam went to her balcony and started crying for help and her charade of playing the victim began. Officer R.P. Gupta, in later press interviews, seems mighty proud of himself for looking into the phone records and establishing the timeline, as he should, rightfully so. I got the call records out and that sealed it. As an inspecting officer, my hunch was that the girl was in it all along, says Gupta proudly later in press interviews. Officer R.P. Gupta had been awarded 50,000 rupees for his efficient police work. With this evidence, the police now approach Salim. They offered a light in his sentence if he can help them with the case. Salim does comply and he points Officer R.P. Gupta to a pond near the Ali household. The police recover the axe used in the murders as well as a blood-soaked t-shirt. The police now finally had hard evidence and their case was rock solid. They were certain that Shabnam would be incriminated. During the trial on 14th July 2010 at the Allahabad High Court, both Shabnam and Salim pled guilty. But unsurprisingly, after spending a year apart from each other and in isolation, they turned on each other. The Supreme Court judgment says that, in her Section 313 statement, Shabman said that Salim had entered the house with a knife through the roof and killed all her family members while she was asleep. Salim, on the other hand, said he reached the house only on the request of Shabnam and that when he had reached her, she confessed to have killing the others. At the outset, it was pertinent to notice that Dushant Prashar, appearing for the two appellant accused, had limited his submissions only to the question of the sentence. Therefore, the scope of these appeals stand restricted to the determination of the appropriate sentence for the offence committed. While determining the quantum of the sentence for Shabnam and Salim, the Allahabad High Court considered the mitigating and aggravating factors in their favour and against. The nature of the offence, the planning that went into carrying out the murders, and the fact that Shabnam had killed all members of her family, including a helpless infant, were considered sufficient to treat this case as the rarest of the rare, deserving of the death penalty. Though extensively argued, the High Court refused to consider factors such as Shabnam's fear of her family or the fact that while in jail, she had given birth to a child. 
remember Taj, who now would be orphaned if his parents were executed. However, Shabnam's level of education and that she should have known better than to commit murder was mentioned as an aggravating factor by the High Court, a theme which the Supreme Court latched onto and went a step further with. To the court, the fact that Shabnam was a daughter who committed parasite with an abomination of a scale so large that no mitigating circumstance could negate it. The court said, in an educated and civilized society, a daughter plays a multifaceted and indispensable role in the family, especially towards her parents. She is a caregiver and a supporter, a gentle hand and a responsible voice, an embodiment of cherished values of our society and in whom a parent places blind faith and trust. The court went on to indict Shabnam for having committed family side despite being educated. This case, the daughter who has been brought up in an educated and independent environment by her family and was respectfully employed as a shiksha mitra at the school, influenced by the love and lust of her paramour, has committed this brutal family side. Not only did she forget her love and duty towards her family, but also perpetuated the multiple homicides in her own house so as to fulfill her desire to be co-accused, the court stated. So the death penalty was issued for both Shabnam and Salim. The possibility of reform was completely negated. This case does not end here. There is a tiny bit of a positive facet to it, surprisingly. Um, Remember at the top of the show, I mentioned Usman, Shabnam's friend from college. Yeah, so anyway, Usman, during the time of Shabnam's trial, was married and settled down. He was still indebted to Shabnam as he believed that if she didn't push him to continue studying and pay his college fees, he would not have turned his life around. After the sentencing, Usman decided to repay his debt. In 2012, he tried 13 times to meet Shabnam in jail and every time his application was rejected. Finally, he saw advertisements in the Hindi newspaper about the child being put up for adoption. He convinced his wife that he owed a lot to Shabnam and must do this for her. Usman and his wife were not able to conceive children and they believed that Taj should not pay for his parents' sins. When Usman finally met Shabnam, she had her face covered with a veil. He later says that he instantly knew something had changed. Chit chidi si, baat nahi suna, ye Shabnam alag thi. When offered to adopt Taj and take care of him like he is his child, Shabnan told him that he wouldn't be able to protect him. The people who killed my parents will kill him. I can't let him go, she retorted. But she was finally convinced. And today, Taj leads a remotely normal life with Usman and his wife. Before she is hanged, Shabnam still has some legal remedies left with her. On February 19th, 2021, she filed fresh mercy petitions with the governor and the president. Shabnam's lawyer, advocate Shreya Rastogi, said in a statement, Shabnam has very important constitutional remedies that need to be exercised. These include the right to challenge the rejection of a mercy petition before the Allahabad High Court and the Supreme Court on various grounds and also the right to file a curative petition in the Supreme Court against the decision on the review. This curative petition can challenge the Supreme Court decision of July 2010, which upheld her death sentence. Also, under the law, if multiple people have been sentenced to death in the same case, they have to be executed together. So Shabnam and Salim can only be hanged only after both of them exhaust all their legal recourses. Mohammad Taj also appealed to President Ramnath Kovind to commute her death sentence. 
I love my mother. I'm making an appeal to the president that her death sentence is commuted. Taj is seen holding a slate seeking forgiveness for his mother. I've put up a video of this on the Instagram page where you can see a grown-up Taj now with his adopted parents sitting behind him as he asks for forgiveness. Nothing has come off this appeal and as of now Shabnam now 39 years old will be hung to death in Mathura jail. If she is she will be the first woman to be hung in free india so i just want to do a quick deep dive into women and the death row i think i touched upon this in my death row sisters episode so the judicial system of india with this landmark decision of granting capital punishment to shabnam a female which is a first in independent india has riled up his own sets of controversies gender disparity pervades in all facets of social life and capital trials worsen pre-existing gender inequality at the same time it has emerged that gender based bias in capital cases is a complicated problem as there's always more than one type of prejudice at work and these prejudices may work for female capital convicts the propensity of players in the judicial system to see females as victims and survivors rather than offenders of crime is at the core of this inconsistencies I don't think I have time to get into the morality of the death sentence or the whether the fact that India is still only one of the very few democracies that uphold it but I can say that punishing criminals is necessary it must be done in accordance with the fundamental principles of natural justice the supreme court's observation that at least 3 judicially educated minds should be used to decide the finality of the death penalty points to the gravity that must be considered while making these decisions And that was the case of Shabnam who in spite of being revered as one of the smartest people in her village went down a path of self-destruction in pursuit of being with her lover. Years later, even today, the village of Bhavankedi, according to reports since 2008, no girl has been named Shabnam. People are too scared to give their daughters that name, says Hasmat Hussain, remember the neighbor who lived in front of Ali's house. The house and the property too are shrouded in controversy today. It still has blood stains in Rashid's room where the massacre took place. Shabnam's uncle, Shaukat Ali's brother, Satar Ali, occupies the house now. But he claims to have received threats from distant relatives who have their sights set on the 9-acre property which is valued at 3 crores today. In the normal course of things, with her parents and brothers dead, Shabnam would have inherited the Shaukat Ali property. However, section 114C of the Uttar Pradesh Revenue Code states that a person who murders a landowner or abets the commission of such a murder will be disqualified from inheriting the interest of the deceased and also muslim family law won't allow taj to stake claim since shabnam isn't legally married to salim so yeah that's the house as it stands today and the stories it tells since 2008 thank you for listening to this episode of in crime as usual thank you all for your support I would appreciate it if you could share it with friends and family if you could like rate and follow me on Spotify and Apple podcasts and of course Instagram that really helps um see you soon and until then have a good one bye